Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hello, I'm Sarah Holton and your host. Today, I'm joined by Lawrence X. Taylor, president of Taylor Strategy Group, an independent board member to many successful companies. He served on committees for audit, nominations and governance, corporate finance, M&A, strategy and restructuring. He was recognized as a 2020 director to watch by the private company director. Lawrence is an active member of both the NACD, where he is a board leadership fellow and is a certified director, and the Private Directors Association, where he holds certificates in private company governance and private equity governance. And Lawrence, that's how you and I met, was through the Private Directors Association. So welcome today. Thank you for having me, Sarah. It's, it's, it's very nice to be here. So let's talk today about board governance for colleges. All colleges are accountable to one or more boards. So how can college leaders maximize the expertise of board members to make organizations more fiscally and operationally viable? Lawrence, let's start with your background. Tell us a little bit about your background, particularly your board service. Sure. As I like to tell folks, and and Sarah, you and I go back a a way so we kind of know each other. I'm a recovering CFO. I've been a CFO three times, and candidly, that was probably five times too many. Uh, But most of my background is in corporate finance, strategic planning, investor relations, M&A work, restructurings and recapitalizations. I've spent most of my life in those areas, very nonlinear career. Uh, There were days when I wish I could say I had been XYZ for the last 30 years, but I haven't. Uh, And actually, it's turned out to work out really well for me in that respect. I probably, over the course of my 30-year career so far, have been engaged in, the numbers sort of get silly, probably 20 plus billion dollars worth of transactional work. I don't say that to brag because my 18-year-old college freshman daughter is completely nonplussed by pretty much (laughs) anything I've ever done in life. (laughs) That's true with all children and all accomplishments (laughs) by all parents. Exactly, right? <laughs> but I've been fortunate enough to, to serve often on for-profit and nonprofit boards over the last 25 years. Uh, I served on my first for-profit board. I was literally volunteered at the age of 32 to serve on my first corporate board. And we can argue the merits of whether or not that was good or bad, but that's kind of where we found ourselves. And over the last 25 years, I think I've served on, oh gosh, nine or 10 corporate boards and probably three or four nonprofit boards. I'm currently serving on five boards as we speak, two publicly traded boards and three privately held boards, one of which is in a Chapter 11, which I might add I did not cause, (laughs) uh, but I was actually elected to their board a month prior to their filing to help facilitate the Chapter 11 experience. So that's hopefully the last 30 years kind of condensed into less than a few minutes. So I'm thinking I'm pretty genius for inviting you into this conversation, and I think (laughs) you are going to have a lot to share with. Let's start at the mountaintop view. Let's start at the big level. Where do you see companies doing well with managing boards? Like, What's going well? Without a doubt, it's open and transparent lines of communication that flows both ways, both from executive management to the board and from the board to executive management. And I don't mean that in the concept of 
it's a free for all. And, and the only thing the CEO does is answer questions from the board or vice versa. But when those opportunities arise where there's a need for healthy, robust discussion, whether within the context and framework of a board meeting or candidly outside the context and framework of a board meeting, be it a committee call or be it a one-off, hey, I've got a couple of questions on this particular subject. I think boards that do it well have a really robust and open line of communication. One of the other things I see uh, that's done particularly well in, in the corporate world is a concept of a lead director. And that's mostly related to publicly traded companies where you have uh, essentially a lead independent director who basically acts as a liaison in a lot of cases between the full board and the CEO or executive management of the team and kind of talks about the, the role or basically functions as a conduit. You know, a lot of times that person, he or she is, is Switzerland. And sometimes they're carrying messages back and forth and being a buffer between the entire board or a subcommittee of the board and executive management. So besides hiring or kind of creating a role for a lead independent director, do you see other things that college boards could maybe take away from corporate boards? Are there any other types of learnings that we could have? Yes, there are, are three that come to mind off the top of my head. One is onboarding new directors. And it's a it's an area that a lot of companies, candidly, even for-profit companies and publicly traded companies kind of fall short. But if you have a really systematic and conscientious way when you bring on new board members uh, into this process in terms of historical information or institutional knowledge or you know reviewing the prior board minutes, I've even seen some companies go as far as to when you bring in a new board member, they partner them with one of the more senior members on the board for their first year to kind of help them navigate this landscape of sitting on the on the board that's new to them. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. And one of the second things, and it's it's really something that board members don't necessarily like to talk about, but it's an annual board assessment and that takes the form of uh, two different kind of avenues. One is a self-assessment, and then one is maybe a third-party assessment that's done of the board. And it's not, you know, a lot of folks, when they think about that, it comes across as, well, if I don't get a good review, then on my way out the door. And that's not the intent of the assessment. Clearly, you have those situations where Folks is over, have overstayed their welcome or their skill set is no longer needed or appropriate for where this particular institution happens to be in its life cycle. But it's more centered around, you know, do we have the right people in the right seats on the bus? Do we have the right skill sets sitting around the table to help us strategically, uh, not to use a sports analogy, but help us strategically move the ball down the field? And I think that's paramount in terms of not only having the right people, but having the right people in the right roles and seats. So that's the second thing that comes to mind. The third thing is continuing board education. I'm a lifelong learner. Uh, I am the product of two public school teachers. Uh, My mom taught for 42 years. My dad taught for 40 years. So I'm one of those weird individuals where if you actually give me something to read, I feel like I'm supposed to read it, make highlights, notes in the margins, and then come back and be able to to disseminate that information to folks. I can relate. (laughs) It cuts both ways, but I am always in the mode in the the methodology of continuing to educate myself on what are the latest trends and topics in the boardroom? How can I be better and more effective board member? And you do that through continuing education. I I probably read articles related to boards 
multiple times a week because I think at the end of the day, it helps me to become and be a better board member. So I think if you, those are the three things that kind of immediately jump to the, my top of mind awareness in terms of things that boards and well managed boards and, and engaged board members uh, partake in. I find that really interesting, that idea of like studying the craft of board service, not just studying what you might need to know about finances or the future of higher education, but how do I be a better board member? So I think that's a really key takeaway for our audience. I'd also like you to expand a little bit on assessment. How would a board go about assessing itself? Are there tools out there that people can utilize? Tell us about that. This is where Dr. Google is your friend. There are a number of board assessments that are out there. Some are very formal. Some are very informal. It just depends on how in-depth you want to go to. But most of them, if you think about it in terms of, of a matrix, these are the top 10 or 12 skills we need on the board. And these are the folks on the board that have these particular skills. Uh, and so the first step is generally a self-assessment, like financial acumen, risk assessment, cybersecurity, DE&I, ESG. And I hate to use acronyms, but I think most folks in our audience will know what those acronyms are. Regulatory compliance. And you literally go through that and you self-assess and you check off, typically on a scale of you know, one to three or one to five, your level of expertise and knowledge in that particular endeavor, be it very little to I'm a subject matter expert. And then you compile that matrix, if you will, and come up with kind of what looks like a Venn diagram of your current board composition. And that really allows you to see where you have overlap, where you have really good expertise, either on a subject matter basis or just on a general basis, and those gaps and holes that you need to fill, either in terms of bringing in outside consultants or outside expertise to help with that if you're in a position where you don't have a particular opportunity or a board opening that's coming up. Or more importantly, when you do have a board opportunity that's coming up, you, you generally know, hey, here are the, the gaps that we have in our skill set on the board. And when we look to bring in new board members, here are some of the things we should look for uh, in terms of that, that skill set. Not to be narrowly defined, right? Because sometimes it's better to have a much broader approach than necessarily a, a you know a kind of a, a, a periscope of a, of a subject matter expert, but at least this assessment gives you the framework for the board to understand where there might be gaps in knowledge that could be beneficial to the board. Okay, so we talked about what boards could do, maybe even bring in fresh ideas and new ways of doing things. What about what boards shouldn't be doing? Like, is there less time allocation they should be putting towards particular endeavors? Have you seen that in your experience where there's just things that aren't adding up to real ROI for a college or an organization? Yeah, there's this phrase out there, and, and I, I actually don't like the phrase, but it's, it's common parlance and lingo for boardrooms where it's along the lines of board members should have those noses in and fingers out mentality. You know, we've all heard that several times, and it's it's not one of my favorite phrases, but it, it kind of gets the point across. And I think one of the things that board members kind of fall into, and it's it's inadvertent in a lot of cases, is that we want to we tend to get bogged down in operating minutia, where because we have a certain expertise in a certain area, we feel it's necessity to be the expert for the board in that area. 
And what I mean by that is, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a former CFO. When I join a board, when I walk into the boardroom, the board and or company doesn't need me to be the CFO. Why? Because they already have a CFO. But what they do need me to do is to draw on my experiences as from being a CFO in terms of how a certain financial issue may have been handled or how a certain loan document or loan covenant may have been negotiated and bring that experience and skill set to the boardroom. But that's fundamentally materially different than me coming in and being the CFO or acting like I'm the CFO. And I've got friends that I've known for 20, 30 years who are former CEOs who fall into this trap uh, or, or this this kind of treadmill when they when they walk into a boardroom where they want to be the CEO because they've accustomed they have been accustomed to being a CEO and being a person in charge for the last 30 years. So I think it's incumbent upon board members not to get bogged down in operating minutiae or operating detail and to kind of step back and really look holistically at the organization and the bigger picture strategically to figure out what needs to be done and where you're going. Do you think that rule is true even for the organizations that are on the cusp of failing? You mentioned that you are involved with a Chapter 11 organization. What if the college is really kind of getting to dire straits or right before? They're in the yellow zone, we'll call them. They're not in the red zone, but maybe they're in the yellow zone. Do you need the board to be a little bit more hands-on? That's probably when the board really needs to step up. And the highest and best use of the board is when you have difficult times or when you're faced with difficult scenarios, that's when they're going to really need you to, as a board member to draw upon your 20, 30, 40 years of experience. And when you really have to step up and for lack of a better phrase, be the adult in the room and make the hard, tough decisions and understanding that the decisions you make as a board member, I mean, you're going to be asked to weigh in, opine, and sometimes vote on decisions that not only affect, directly affect potentially thousands of people, but literally on an ancillary basis, tens of thousands of people. And so that's when I really think as a board member, you have to draw on your subject matter expertise to really help address the issue that you're being presented with, particularly if that issue is not necessarily pleasant. One of the other things I think is a really good corporate board practice um, that used to be really problematic, but is getting better. Something I call death by PowerPoint. We've all been in those meetings where there's a big deck and it's beautiful and it's pretty and it's got charts, it's got graphs and it's got bullet points and the information is really relevant, but you have presenters come in to present their sections of the PowerPoint and they recite the PowerPoint. One of my pet peeves, I can read the PowerPoint, right? I, I think it's more incumbent upon the presenter, be it executive management or somebody who comes in to present a certain section to the board, that they speak to the slides. They don't speak of what the slides actually say. So as a reader, as a listener, I want to know the nuance of what I might be missing that's above and beyond or in between just the static verbiage that's on the PowerPoint deck slide, if that makes any sense. I agree. I mean, I teach that to my freshmen. Like that's like unit one. Please stop reading your PowerPoints. And yet we see it over and over again. So right. I do understand what you're saying. So do you think boards are ever underutilized, you know, in tapping their specialized expertise? Has that been your experience where maybe you have something to offer, but you're not really being called upon enough or in the way that you could be helpful to? I think it it, it definitely happens. 
I would also encourage board members when a particular subject comes up. If it happens to be in their wheelhouse, if they happen to have decades of experience doing that, and if they're being underutilized, I think it's incumbent upon you as a board member to speak up and volunteer information that the group may not necessarily, I shouldn't say information, information slash insights that the group may not necessarily be privy to because it's not a world that they have historically played in. So I think to that extent, yes, you have to offer up insight when it's applicable. The caveat being, don't necessarily get bogged down in the minutia of what you're presenting. So what advice would you give to college presidents and other executive teams on how to manage boards? You talked a little bit about what they could be doing. You talked a little bit about utilizing them in the right way. What's your best advice for them? Every board, by definition, Everybody who sits on the board has a has a healthy-sized ego, because if not, you wouldn't be in the boardroom. You've got a certain level of gravitas. You've got decades of experience. You wouldn't be in that position unless you had a healthy ego. So there's this, there's this ego management, this ego balance, if you will, that has to take place in the boardroom. And I think it's incumbent upon executive management to understand that. I take the position... Where And it, it's worked out, knock on wood, well for me so far in my professional career, in my personal career. I treat old people like they're little kids, and I treat little kids like they're old people. So I'm really good with folks under the age of seven or over the age of 70. <laughs> but what I mean by that is you have to be able to balance the personalities that are in the room and understand what motivates and what doesn't motivate certain people, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. So understanding like why they even agreed to be there in the first place, you know, what is it that you love about this institution and higher ed and how you think you can contribute to the future of our organization? Yeah, absolutely. So what's your, it sounds like this takes a lot of time, right? Before we segue into something else, I think the other really critical thing, there's, there's two things actually, and this flows both ways, both from executive team to the board and from the board back to the executive team. One is to be an active listener. Uh, we all hear. We don't always listen. And to be an active listener, I think, is critical in the boardroom. I've always been of the opinion that you should ask more questions in the boardroom than you give answers to. Because the, the more questions and the better quality of questions you ask, the more robust the landscape answers are. And the more robust and better answers you get, the better solutions that you you ultimately come up with. So, you know, be an active listener and be an engaged questioner. I think one of the most underrated skills of any board member or any board, let's put it that way, is the ability to ask thoughtful, relevant, insightful questions without, and probing questions, without being condescending, without coming off a certain way. Uh, I can't tell you the number of boardrooms I've been in where I kind of go, wow, I wish somebody had asked that question six months ago or a year ago. Maybe we would have come to a different answer. And in that same vein, I've learned over the years that A, I'm going to blame my parents. I will never be the smartest person in the room or at the table. And I'm okay with that. But really, at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot of advantage to being the smartest person in the room for, for two reasons, right? One, 
there's a high likelihood. You know, bragging rights. <laughs> yeah, but, but one, there's probably a high likelihood you're not the smartest person in the room. And two, if you happen to be the smartest person in the room, everybody else will likely resent you for being the smartest person in the room. So I think it's it's incumbent upon us to ask questions of the room. And even if you think you already know the answer, or if you have an opinion that's already formulated in your mind, ask the question anyway, because it, you may come up with a different answer in a different perspective. And I think that's one of the most underrated aspects of being a board member is your ability to ask questions. And I think there's another brilliance in asking a question. You can often make a point that needs to be made, but if you put it in the form of a question as opposed to a statement, it comes off in a little bit more of a diplomatic way. A thousand percent, yes. And and it's, it's funny. Uh, I, I had a boss very early in my career. I was a 24-year-old senior financial analyst for a casino gaming company of all things. And she was the only female on the executive committee that met once a week. And to this day, she is the best boss I've ever had. I would literally, to this day, walk through fire for this woman if I had to. But she had this unique ability to phrase her her statements in the form of a question. And when you can do that, it's completely disarming. It's almost like the Jerry Maguire, help me help you kind of scenario. But you're spot on in that. If, if you can phrase your statements in the form of a question, you will be amazed at the answers you will get from people who would, know, who would otherwise maybe be reticent or not give you an answer. And candidly, it's, it's not off-putting. To your point, it's a very diplomatic way of doing things. So it takes a lot of time to be a good board member, right? You have mm-hmm. to keep yourself updated on the company. You have to do your due diligence with being a better board member and what you can contribute. What's your thoughts on how much time it takes to prepare all of this that goes into board meetings? So the materials, maybe the pre-meetings, discussions, other indirect resources of managing a board. Can we put a price tag on this? I don't know if you can put a price tag on it. I can tell you it's more time than we all ever think. From a board member's perspective, on an annual basis, I probably spend 250 to 300 hours at least per board. And that's prep time. That's you know some travel time. That's the, the, the pre-dinner. That's the post-dinner. That's the meeting. It's the committee meetings, uh, which is something we haven't really talked about that I also think is is very helpful and useful for all boards, is having these sort of adjunct ad hoc committees. The time you have to spend on your own becoming smarter or more conversant, uh, not only in your own area of expertise, but what's going on in your particular industry, what's going on in your particular sector or segment. And then more globally, you know, what's what's happening on a national scale that may be impacting your business or your institution or your constituents. And then, you know, what's happening on a, on a regional basis and on a local basis. So I think if you add all of those things together, it's an easy kind of 300-ish hours a year. And from management's perspective, you're going to have to spend time putting together the information for the board meeting itself and the prep time and how you're going to present that to the board. So I've been told by by various managements and boards that I serve on is on an annual basis, they they spend probably a couple of hundred hours just prepping stuff, reviewing stuff, going over their presentation, presenting to the board. You know, if, if you want to distill that down into a, a man hour or a person hour, 
per basis kind of thing, it's pretty expensive at the end of the day. Necessary, but also expensive in terms of just trying to quantify it. So significant, but necessary. What do you think happens if boards aren't meeting enough? Let's just say they don't, for whatever reason, could be a number of reasons, they just don't meet that regularly. Maybe they only meet two, three, four times a year. What's your thoughts on what can get missed? The small issues get missed. The big issues are manifest. They take care of themselves. They're obvious. Uh, But it's the smaller, more nuanced issues that I think can get missed if boards don't meet on a regular basis. And not, not only meet on a regular basis, but meet and have a purpose and have an outcome and have results and have robust thought and diversity of thought. I think that's what you miss when you don't necessarily meet formally on a regular basis. Uh, in addition to that, let's go back to something we I wanted to touch on earlier, but we didn't, and that's the relevance of committees. Uh, having good functioning subcommittees that are subsets of the board that report back to the board during the board meeting is invaluable. Uh, and it helps on a lot of fronts. One, uh, it helps those committee members to work together and you get to know your other committee members really, really well. But not only that, it takes information and which sometimes can be complex information and distills it down at the committee level so that then when it's presented to the board, they're not getting this huge data dump. They're getting relevant information, be it from an audit committee or finance committee or a cybersecurity committee or a risk assessment committee or strategic planning committee, whatever your committee happens to be. I think those are really, really important parts of being an engaged, A, an engaged board member and B, having a board that's more engaged because you're getting relevant real-time information without having to go through an entire data dump to get to what you need to know. We're reading more and more in the news about how some schools are struggling financially. Some are in that yellow zone. Some are kissing the red zone. Some are looking at mergers being acquired. Talk to me about signs of financial distress. What does it look like? And what types of decisions are most urgent when the doors might close? Sarah, how much time do you have? Because this could <laughs> this could be a separate podcast onto itself. Season two. Season two, right? So, and we did not touch upon this earlier. We glossed over it a little bit. I spent about 10 or 12 years as a partner managing director in a financial advisory firm that advised distressed clients, uh, distressed companies. And sometimes that included up to and including filing chapter 11. So I I know a little bit about this distress world. And the first thing I'm going to say is financial distress should not come as a surprise to any company that ultimately finds itself in financial distress. There are a number of markers, a number of checkpoints, way stations along the way that lead you to the point where you find yourself in what they in what not euphemistically we call the zone of insolvency. It's a term of art, for lack of a better phrase. But first of all, cash is king. How much cash do we have? When do we get cash coming in? Who do we owe? How much do we owe? And when does that cash go out? Just as a fundamental gating item. So when you start to see your cash in the bank or your cash receipts start to shrink consistently over time, and you start to see your payables ramp up, that's a sign. When you start to see your 
what we like to call your, your, your day is payable versus your day is receivable get out of balance, that's a sign. If you're having to pay people, vendors, quicker than you're receiving money in. So stated differently, if you're getting paid by folks who owe you money, I'm going to make up a number here, 30 days, but you're having to pay your vendors in 27 days or 28 days, that's problematic because your outflows of cash are going out quicker than you're receiving them. Now, it could be a timing issue or it could be indicative of a, of a larger, more systemic problem. And so those are the sorts of things that you need to keep in mind. If you have if a company has debt that's coming due in 18 months and that debt either has to be refinanced or there's a balloon payment that has to be renegotiated or paid off and it's 12 to 18 months out, the time to start thinking about that is today. It's not six months before the issue needs to be dealt with. Candidly, it's going to take the lawyers four months to wallpaper and, and, and negotiate everything. So the time to start thinking about potential financial issues that may be looming on the horizon 12 to 18 to 24 months out is today. It's not three or four or five or six months before that issue becomes manifest. When do you recommend that leaders make the potential kind of red flags really transparent for the board when they start saying, standing up, they're not reading their PowerPoint, of course, but they're standing up and saying, hey, review these P&L statements. They're not looking good. At what point? Are you saying 12 to 18 months? Is it longer than that? Well, now I'm going to go back to, you know, there, we have the saying in restructure, nothing's a problem until it's a problem. But as executives, as board members, we should be able to look at the financial statements that's being presented to us, going back historically, presently, and kind of on a future basis and go, guys, gals, something's not right here. We need to take a harder look at this. It's not one of those where you wake up one morning and you flick on the light switch and you go, oh my God, something's really, really wrong. If that's the case, then there's been a failure of communication along the lines that's been there for months and in some cases years that nobody was paying attention to. So I think it's incumbent upon the board members and executive management. You don't have to be a financial expert. You don't have to understand what the financial covenants are, but you do need to know how much cash do we have? How much debt do we have? How much money do we have coming in? How much money do we have coming out? When those things start to look out of whack, you really need to start take a deeper and harder and longer dive into what might be causing that imbalance. There's this concept we use in, in Chapter 11 or for distressed companies that candidly, I wish all companies would use, but understand it's not all that practical, even though it's pretty much a mandate when you find yourself in this distress situation. That's the concept of a 13-week cash flow, meaning it's a very high level. This is probably more minutia than you wanted to know about the world of restructuring, but it's a very high level of Here's what we have coming in on a cash receipt basis. Here's what we have to pay this week. Here's what our ending balance is for this week. And here's what we're going to roll forward to the next week. And the reason why it's 13 weeks, which is three months, is that it's it's fairly predictable and it's fairly stable in terms of your ability to look at your financial or your cash inflows and your cash outflows over that short time frame, uh, but it really gives you some insight in terms of what might be coming down the pipeline three months, four months down the road. 
So some of these financially distressed institutions are entering into some merger agreements. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with mergers, particularly successful mergers? Like what works? A couple of things. I'm not sure there's any merger or any acquisition in the history of mergers and acquisitions that have been 100% successful. Just the nature of the beast. I, I think when you start talking about merging with another company, and let's take them separately. So if you're merging with another company, there is no such thing as a merger of equals. Somebody at the end of the day has to be in charge. And I've been involved with a lot of companies that have merged with other companies. And when the rubber hits the road is when everybody realizes that somebody has to be in charge. And the, the company that ends up not being in charge kind of goes, whoa, wait a minute. This is not what I signed up for. So the first thing is that in a merger, there's really no such thing as a merger of equals. At the end of the day, somebody has to be in charge. Second thing, from an acquirer standpoint, really understand what it is that you're acquiring or conversely, who is acquiring you. And in the world of M&A, the devil really is in the details. It's the things you don't, it's the minutiae that you don't necessarily think about that makes or break a successful merger slash acquisition. The other thing that, that gets kind of short shrift in the world of acquisitions is that particularly in the, in the context of an M&A, the people do really matter. It's not the investment bankers. It's not the executive. It's the folks who are actually doing the work day to day who keep the engine turning and keep the lights on. The people do really, really matter. And the most important thing in in my perspective and based on my experience about mergers is the post-merger integration. Mergers and acquisitions aren't as successful as they could be or should be, not because it was a bad idea. Not because the math didn't work, not because the finances didn't work, but because it wasn't integrated on a post-acquisition basis as successfully and as seamlessly as it as it could have been or as it should have been. And that goes back to this human capital equation because you're essentially bringing two organizations together where you have different personalities, you have different perspectives, you may have different operating philosophies and different ways of doing the same task. And those things really need to be thought about in terms of how are we going to implement X, Y, and Z? How are we going to merge two HR departments or two finance departments or two IT departments? And how do we do that successfully? Understanding that these folks have never worked together before. They may not necessarily like each other. One group, you know, people always go, am I still going to have a job, you know, post this acquisition? So I really think it's incumbent upon both companies to really be fully engaged in how this integration is going to be actualized and materialized on on a post-merger basis. I'm hearing you talk about mergers from two different levels. You have operations, which Mm -hmm. is logistics. Figure out your operations, figure out your back office. But also, even more importantly, are the people who are running those operations. And there's this human element that we can't ignore or forget about in the post-merger land. Correct. And in my opinion, it's the latter. It's probably more important than the former. Mm-hmm. The, the math and metrics will be what they are. That's why we hire investment bankers and legal counsel and to get fairness opinions and run through the models and everything else. That's actually... The easiest part, believe it or not, of an acquisition. The hardest part is is the post-acquisition integration and how do we integrate the people 
into one organization so we can continue to be effective and be candidly bigger and better than we were as two separate standalone entities. So I have a final wrap-up question for you as we're nearing the end of our time together. I want to know your best advice for college leaders to operate a fiscally viable institution. It could be related to board service, but it could be something else entirely. Financially fiscally responsible. You heard me say this earlier. Understand your cash position. Just to cut to the quick. If you don't have enough cash to operate your business, you are dead in the water. And there's no two ways around that. How much do we have? Who do we owe? And when do we have to pay it? And how much are we going to get back in? And be proactive when it comes to thinking about your financial position, your strategic position, and where you want to be six months, nine months, 12 months, 24 months, three years down the road and understand that everything fits together. The analogy I like to use all the time is that there's a reason why stools have a minimum of three legs because you can't sit on a two-legged stool without falling over. So understand that you've got your finance piece, you've got your operations piece, you've got your strategy piece. And you really need all three of those as the underpinnings of your stool, for lack of a better phrase. And all three of those different legs need to work together seamlessly and coherently and both dependent and independent of one another, but always interdependent of one another in order to keep somebody sitting on the stool. Lawrence, how could people reach out and contact you if they wanted to learn more about the work of boards and how to maximize them? I don't know if there's a way to, to get my email address out to people or, or my cell yep, number. Yep, we can put it in the show notes. I am easily accessible. I don't take myself very seriously at all. I don't stand a lot of formality and protocol. To the extent I can be helpful, folks should feel free to drop me an email, um, drop me a text, call me, and I'm happy to, uh, to chat. Lawrence, thank you so much for your time today. I know we all learned a lot. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.